Missouri's annual veto session is right around the corner, and we thought this would be a good time to lay out the lay of the land. Join us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you no, know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Do we really want to make it easier for businesses to hire illegal workers and get government contracts? So you have to ask the sponsor and the legislators who supported this bill that would do away with this safeguard. Does this bill help Missourians or hurt them? That's Governor Jane Nixon talking to reporters last week in preparation for this week's veto session. Hello, I'm Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio, and this is the Politically Speaking podcast. Joining me in studio today is colleague Joe Manis. We're we're taking it old school. Today. No guests. No, no guests. guests today. We do this like two or three times a year. This used to be the entire show, just a bunch of reporters. <laughs> That's how boring we used talking to be. aimlessly. Oh, I, I wouldn't say we were boring. We were we were actually quite spirited in in this old format. But we wanted to talk about veto session. There's a bunch of things going on not only in the legislature, but in the world of Missouri politics, that we needed to take a step back from guests and just talk about things. Joe, you're going to be going to Jefferson City yes, this yeah. week. Yes. Are you excited? <laughs> well, I'm always, it's always fascinating to me. I haven't been in Jeff City for a few months, so frankly, I'll be excited to kind of see what the I'll be looking at for the atmosphere, and frankly, I'll also be looking for... Um, whether or not there's any change in the uh, veto session habit of having all these fundraisers the night before, doing all this campaigning that people a year ago were promising they were going to change, mm. all this money raising. Yeah. I'm not sure anything's going to be any different. Uh, well, no. I mean, let's let's not bury the lead there. Well, it's probably a good <laughs> thing that I'm not going because the last few times I've gone to Jefferson City, somebody has resigned. <laughs> Last time it was Joe Kevney. He did not resign in disgrace, thankfully. He got a different job. Then there was Don Gosen, who did resign under not-so-good circumstances. And, of course, John Deal, who, you know, we don't need to Our rephrase things. Our most frequent guest, who ended up having to step down as House Speaker S- a little, about a year and a half ago. But enough nostalgia. What do you think are going to be the big things that— are going to happen. Obviously, there's two major pieces of legislation. Guns and voting. Guns and voting. Um, Tell me a little bit what you're expecting from a policy standpoint. Okay. In some of this, I've I've learned a few things the last 24 hours to change some of my views on this, too. And we're recording this on Thursday uh, before a veto session. Yes. Okay. The photo ID bill is the implementation part of a two-part process that uh, Republicans will have to go through if they want to get a photo ID requirement in the Missouri Constitution and into law. This would lay out how it would work. Uh, the governor vetoed this bill. Uh, the bill only would go in force if Missouri voters vote in November in favor of allowing a photo ID requirement. But there have been two schools of thought on this. Uh, This uh, photo ID uh, implementation bill does have some provisions that some Democrats, while they're not keen on it, they figure they can live with because it's looser than earlier ones that the governor had vetoed. So 
the the conventional wisdom is that the General Assembly will vote to override the governor's veto of this bill. Second one, the gun bill, which has uh, expanded stand-your-ground provision, which is pretty uh, controversial. Also, would in effect get rid of Missouri's uh, permit system for concealed carry. Um, also expands uh, the castle doctrine as far as who can defend themselves if they're in some house and somebody breaks in. Uh, there's a whole lot of stuff in this bill. My belief initially had been that the governor vetoed it. Uh, Democrats plan to try in the Senate to filibuster it if necessary. From what I understand, they're going to the the Senate is going to be asked to. Uh, the Senate's going to try to override it first because if it doesn't work in the Senate, it's there's. I there's, think it also originated in the Senate too. Correct, correct, but. That's true, but but my point is is that the Senate action is going to be key. I've heard two things in the last 24 hours which interest me. One is that um, veto sessions are only a day or two long, and there are some legislators who don't want to string us out. And so if the Senate, if they see there's going to be a filibuster and there's a bunch of other bills they want to try to override, some of them of minor importance statewide, but of key importance to certain legislators. Um, there is some concern about whether or not the Senate wants to get bogged down in a, in a uh, filibuster over this and not get anything else. Second, I have been hearing that a number of rural sheriffs have been weighing in against this bill, against getting rid of the permit system. Now, this is separate from some of the... Um, uh, complaints or concerns aired by um, uh, law enforcement about how this, in particular in domestic violence cases, it could put potential victims at risk. Uh, there's been a lot of that being pressed around, but I'm told that a number of sheriffs have really been leaning on their rural legislators and that this may not be the slam dunk that some of us thought just a week or two ago. But the thing is, the NRA has gotten involved yes. in saying that it should be overridden. As I said in a previous Politically Speaking Republican legislators in particular are, are very hesitant to go against the NRA. In 2013, the gun nullification bill that we've talked about, the NRA didn't do anything on that. And their silence pretty much was a pass for people to oppose it, like Attorney General Chris, Chris Coster, Coster and several Republicans as well. So do you think the, the NRA is going to be a more a, a bigger influence on legislators than these rural sheriffs? I'm not sure. I've been looking at some of the NRA stuff online, so they are campaigning for this. But I've also been told there may be some sort of effort on the floor. They can't change anything. No. But at least that they could say, look, there are these flaws in this bill, and we promise we're going to come back and pass something that doesn't have these particular flaws. So I'm told that there are some behind-the-scenes discussions going on. There, there may be some sort of effort to try to appease the NRA and promise that they're going to come up with something else. And um, I'm not saying any of this is going to happen. I'm just saying that I've heard some talk the last 24 hours that intrigues me because I've been hearing that there's a pretty heavy effort going on well, by let's, the sheriffs. Let's talk about another rhetorical factor, and that's the aforementioned Attorney General Chris Coster, who is the Democratic gubernatorial nominee. Um, Coster recently won the endorsement of the National Rifle Association over GOP gubernatorial hopeful Eric Greitens. Yeah, who's pretty good with the assault weapons. Right. And I, I haven't 
talked to the attorney general about this specific bill, but I have seen him quoted elsewhere as basically saying he doesn't oppose it, essentially. I'm not sure if he's talked to you about it, but I'm I'm not getting a sense he's going to do what he did in 2013 and oppose this bill. No, I don't think so either. I've asked him about this. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I think you might have been indirectly alluding to is he hasn't really come out very strongly against the photo ID bill either. In fact, State Representative Justin Alferman, who sponsored the photo ID bill, told me this last week. And it's going to be said uh, on on September 14th. It's going to say how this bill is, is disingenuous, how it's unconstitutional, how it's um, trying to limit the ability of minority and women to vote. And I want to just actually point out how absurd that is. And even the governor candidate for the Democratic Party in the state of Missouri has been on record as saying, quote, this bill holds up election integrity without placing overburdensome regulations on the voting process, end quote. Now, I did make sure to check that that quote was real, and it indeed was. It was from a Kansas City Star article. The article said that Coster opposes photo ID in principle, but he did say that this bill in particular, as you were kind of mentioning, wasn't as bad as previous iterations. I should also just point out just for the record, though. Yeah, yeah, he has come out against the constitutional amendment. Right. But I should point out for the record that when he was a Republican, not only did Chris Coster vote for photo ID, he signed a previous question motioning to kill a Democratic filibuster. He's obviously had a, a somewhat change of heart on this. My point for bringing this up is, is it going to be harder for Democrats to make their messaging against the gun bill and the photo ID bill when their Democratic gubernatorial nominee is making statements like that are not opposing the bill, like, for example, the gun bill? Well, in the veto session, I don't think it's going to make much difference. I think, you know, at this point, Coster is focusing all of his fire on Eric Greitens. Um He's uh, Coster has been playing up that he's uh, has uh, is on good terms with some Republicans in the legislature. Legislature, it may weaken the Democratic stance a little bit, but I think at this point, um, a I think most Democrats expect that the veto of the photo ID uh, implementation bill, as I just said, may well get overridden. Uh, but with all the stuff going on in the gun thing, I think some of them would just as soon appreciate that. Coster, he isn't saying anything. So I think that tells me they're just going to let this play out. So I don't necessarily think so. I mean, I think we'll we'll wait after a veto session, see how things fall out. Now, um, one thing that I think could end up inhibiting the process of both of those bills is whatever the Senate Democrats decide to do. There, there are enough votes to pass both of those bills in the House. One, they have one, Republicans have 114 members. I expect more than 114 to vote for the gun bill because they're going to be some. But I'm hearing, I'm hearing that that's changed. That's changed. I'm hearing that in the House, the, the all this effort by the sheriffs are peeling off votes that on the Republican side, rural Missouri. That's what I'm hearing. Okay. Well, we'll have to see if that occurs. But on the photo ID one, I don't expect any Democrats to vote for this bill. No. And in fact, I would expect that bill to also potentially be the target of a filibuster. Here's Senator Gina Walsh telling me why she opposes that measure. I hope that some of these rural legislators might think about their grandmother if their grandmothers are still in this, are still alive. You know, my grandmother uh, was from Greenville, and a lot of her records were just destroyed. 
you know, folks don't often, don't always, not often, but don't always have the ability to prove they are who they say they are as far as uh, bringing proof to uh, the Board of Election Commissioners that you can get a photo ID or proof to get a photo ID. By the way, Greenville is a reference, I believe, to that city in Illinois that got destroyed by a tornado. So I believe that people like Senator Walsh and the rest of the diminished Senate Democratic caucus are going to make those types of arguments. And but but photo ID has been a priority for Republicans for at least a decade, if not more. And I wouldn't be surprised if they decided to use a previous question on this if there was a filibuster. Maybe not the gun bill, but this is one I think that they want passed. Is that your understanding yeah, as too? Yeah, I, I think so too. So, and and you wonder if there might be some sort of deal. Again, we're doing this several days before the veto session starts. There may be there may be some sort of deal cut in the Senate. There's all sorts of deals cut between the leadership and the rank and file. Sometime, I think Ron Richard, who is head of the Senate, he may very well um, decide. What things he 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 believes that have to get passed, what things he might bend on, depending on how the sheriffs in his district are talking to him. Uh, so I think we'll know maybe even Monday, I mean, Tuesday afternoon before the veto session starts Wednesday morning. I suspect we'll probably be hearing some stuff if I'm in Jeff City, some you know, hints about what may or may not happen. Because I think Richard, I don't think, wants a replay of where they brought something up early and there's a filibuster and you got a lot of legislators who don't want to hang around for veto session for two days this time. I, I've heard that. Mm-hmm. So he may, as I said, try to cut a deal and say, okay, look, you guys let this go through and we'll maybe uh, at least delay till the end of the day this other thing. Well, I I think that one of the things that I've always looked for in veto session is whether the Republicans are willing to use the previous question. Because in 2012, 2013, we were still in this era where there was this moratorium on using that. And it had lasted for almost seven years. And it was broken, actually, during the 2014 veto session on a bill to establish a 72-hour waiting period for abortions. Now, we all thought that that might be kind of a special occasion to use the previous question, but it turned out there was a previous question in 2015 for right to work. And there was a 2000, in 2016, there was a previous question for SJR 39, the constitutional amendment that would have allowed certain entities to deny services to same-sex couples. So really, there really is, isn't much of a hesitation to use the previous question anymore. And I, although I, I, I kind of tend to agree with you that the gun bill may not be the target I, I think the photo ID one might be. That's just my sense. Yeah. I mean, as I said, a lot of this is just stuff I've learned in the last day or so, which made me, which has made me change some of my initial assumptions. Just goes to show, you know, you just never, you can't like just sit back and not talk to people and just have a sense that this is going to happen or that's going to happen. Uh, the legislators involved, they've got many of them, 
you know, they've got their hand at least in the pulse in their district, especially in an election year. Yeah. So when you start hearing stuff, it's good to at least pay attention. But a lot of these House members, especially on the Republican side, don't have opponents. Are they in heavily Republican That's districts? True. So they That's can, true. They, they have much more leeway to act. Good point. One thing, though, that I thought of when I was kind of doing the calculus is that there are two Republicans who lost re-election in the House, uh, Sheila Salon and Nick King. And, Joe, I think we were both at veto session yes. in 2012 when there were at least two legislators who had lost state Senate primaries who took a walk during the whole bill aimed at counteracting the federal insurance contraceptive mandate. In fact, Ward Franz was actually in the elevator with us and said hello. I shook his hand and he was nowhere to be found during that that bill. So that makes me wonder, especially on Bill's that may be closer, maybe talking about the lesser known bills. If if Salon and King decide either not to show up or decide that they're no longer playing ball and they're going to not vote to override things anymore, whether that ends up making a difference on things. What What's your kind of your thoughts on that? Well, I think that may very well happen because, um, I mean, those, the primaries, especially because you had all this money coming in from uh, mainly one man. David Humphreys. Uh, David Humphreys, a wealthy businessman from Joplin. So, in fact, I predict that what happens during the veto session may depend in part on what David Humphreys cares about and what David Humphreys doesn't care about. I don't about. think he really cares about either of these issues that much. He's always been kind of a right-to-work person. I mean, he's been pretty upfront about that's his main purpose, and I don't think either of these bills really correspond with that issue, do they? Well, I don't know. I, I've heard that he also is interested in guns. Um, but anyway, it's it's going to be fascinating uh, to watch because I think your thoughts about the uh, legislators who got knocked off in the primary because of David Humphrey's money, um, in part, uh, it, may, it may be an interesting question whether they even bother to show up at all. And there was a Democrat who lost re-election as well, but as as most of our listeners know, it's less relevant if a Democratic legislator doesn't show up unless that person is going to override a veto. Right. And it's hard for me to see a scenario where a lot of Democrats vote to override the two bills we've been talking about most of the yeah. time. What other things are you kind of looking looking for during veto session? As Governor Nixon alluded to in his clip, those two bills we're talking about are not the only things up for discussion. They're clearly the most high profile. Right. But there are a lot of smaller bills that were also vetoed. Yeah, correct. And I talked to House Speaker uh, uh, Todd Richardson a couple days ago at the Pence rally here in St. Louis. And this is what was telling to me. He was real circumspect because I was asking him about different bills, including the gun bill and the photo ID bill. And he wouldn't make any predictions on anything. He just said he was confident that they would – that the um, – General Assembly would continue to override the governor. He's speaking in general, and that and that it's going to they're 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 going to add to the total, making him the most overridden governor ever. Now, just so our listeners know, this is b- largely because you've got a Democratic governor and an overwhelmingly Republican state Senate and state House. But I thought it was interesting that he declined to make any predictions on any particular bill. Well, I, I I know that Nixon kind of pushed back against that and basically said, like, what does it matter if I'm the most overridden governor if you're overriding bad policies? But 
I don't think we saw mass overridden bills during the Ashcroft or Bond administrations. I, I mean, you were around then. I was four or five years old. But <laughs> no, there wasn't. Isn't that kind of indicative also something on Nixon's part as well? Uh, possibly, but I think it's more indicative of something else. Term limits. Yeah. When Ashcroft was governor, term limits weren't around. And uh, so you had a number of legislators who'd been around for decades. And again, at this point, Democrats were con- were in control. Yeah. But deals were cut or people knew uh, whether one agreed or disagreed with certain legislators. The veteran legislators, at least, they had a sense of history. And so they, they, they and the governor could deal on stuff because of that. And also some of the rural Democrats were probably more conservative, too. Yes. And um, there was because a lot of the legislators had been around for a while, there was more bipartisan uh, dealings. There was more camaraderie. There was less uh, everything party line vote, where now, um, whether one likes it or not, The General Assembly really is somewhat in line with Congress in that the Republicans and Democrats as a whole don't mix much. Mm. They don't know each other that much. I mean, we're talking as a whole, not, you know. There are probably individual examples where that that, Right, but the point is you don't have, I mean, most of the guys or ladies who've been around a long time, most of the men or women legislators who've been around a long time, you know, they were out of the House and Senate after their required eight years, but they're now roaming the halls as lobbyists, at most of them. So it's a whole di- different atmosphere, much more partisan. And in some ways, the the uh, these legislators, many of them are looking for their next job. In some cases, they are more influenced by um, special interests because maybe they're looking to be a lobbyist for that firm when they get out. It's a whole different atmosphere than when you were a toddler. Yes. Now, this is going to be my a, a, a parting thought, so to speak. So with Nixon leaving office, we'll either have a Republican governor, Eric Greitens, or a Democratic governor, Chris Coster. And I was thinking if veto session as a major event may end after one of those two become, becomes governor. And here's why. If, if Greitens becomes governor, he's going to sign a lot of bills that Nixon would have vetoed. I'm not saying the legislature and Greitens are going to agree on everything. Matt Blunt and the legislature didn't agree on everything. But I would imagine that there will be fewer bills that are vetoed and fewer vetoed bills to overridden. I mean, during the Matt Blunt administration, veto session was a completely inconsequential event. Even if Coster becomes governor, I, I, I do imagine there will be instances that there will be veto showdowns, but he has a reputation of being more hands-on and trying to solve complex legislative problems. At least that's my sense from watching him when he was in the, in the state Senate. So do you think that you're, do you think that Wednesday's veto session may be an end of the era for a while? Well, I always hate to say blanket statements about stuff, Jason, because every time you think, well, this is definitely going to be X and ends up being Y, I think your premise is probably a good one for the short term, but there's no guarantee. I mean, because, again, while Coster is a former Republican, because of term limits, most of the people who served with him, who knew him well, they're gone. Yeah. Or they will be by the time he's he's sworn in. So 
for many legislators coming in who are Republicans, as far as they're concerned, he's a Democrat. The fact that he used to be a Republican, they could care less, and many of them may resent him. I mean, this is assuming if he wins. Right. So I'm not sure that it's going to change uh, the atmosphere that much. But but Coster has taken different positions than Nixon on some issues, like agriculture policy. Yes. He's much more in line with the Missouri Farm Bureau, which is typically what rural Republicans gravitate they to. They endorsed him. He's the first Democrat to get that endorsement from the Farm Bureau in, in, in a Maybe years. ever. So I'm just kind of thinking, like, because he agrees with Republicans on some you know, big policy spheres, there may not be these disagreements that we're seeing. I, I agree with you. You shouldn't make blanket statements, which is why I was kind of hesitating to say we're never going to see a veto session like this again if Coster becomes governor. I'm just wondering, if though, if there's just going to be less things going on if he's governor. Well, possibly. But again, I think, you know, you and I, I mean, even even you, as I said, we have more of a history, background history, than most of the legislators that are going to be around in 2017. Yeah. Most, many of them are going to be new people. And as I said, they aren't going to know any of this. And if they hear about it, they could care. Well, I, I think only a handful of legislators there know what the term mostila means. Um, <laughs> most of them are in the Senate. Several are probably in the House who were aides to senators back in that golden era. But we'll leave it at that. We'll be looking forward to reading your coverage from Jefferson City along with Marshall Griffin's coverage. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And we'll be back next time. Until then, so long.